with demand expected to come back, but the question remains, does this mean the economy is back on track? Companies now, after experimenting with offshore and places like India, Philippines, and Poland, want to bring those jobs back. We invest in the U.S. We're the biggest exporter in the country. In the cycle one right now, we're creating jobs. From Radio America, it's Neil Asbury's Made in America. The show that explores American industry, large and small, and promotes American-made products everywhere. Put Neil Asbury's Made in America to work for you. A very big welcome to you today. I'm Neil Asbury, together with co-host Dr. Rich Rothman. Rich, it has been a little bit of time since we've talked about Obamacare, but there's big news this week out on Obamacare, the latest pullout. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've talked about the death spiral of Obamacare, you know, actually, since it was first uh, thrust upon us. Since that there Nancy was, Pelosi said we have to pass it with to find out what's in it. And we Good have conversation. Well, it's taken us a few years. <laughs> like, OK, but, I got that one. Well, the problem is, and, you know, they had all of these really beautiful charts showing all of these young people were going to sign up and pay all this money. So all the folks that really need a lot of care, very expensive care. Uh, the few people that would require that would have all of these younger people who did not need care funding uh, Obamacare and, you know, creating this uh, glorious health care system that would have uh, taken care of millions and millions that had previously been uninsured. The problem is all those young people have not shown up. But the folks that need a lot of care, very expensive care, seems to be the only ones showing up. <laughs> That's right. And because they need it. There's no question. So it's skewed now, isn't it, Neil? Not incredibly the way they skewed. thought it would be. And now you've had, well, we've, we've covered when United Health had pulled out, the, the, the nation's largest insurer. And now this week we hear that Aetna's pulling out, uh, who is the nation's fourth largest insurer. And I'd just like to tell our listeners that our great producer, the incredible Phil McGeehan, in Washington at Radio America did reach out to Aetna for someone to comment on this story, but they have denied uh, this request. So therefore, we have someone even better coming on this show to talk about what is going on with this. We're very pleased to have Sally Pipes from the Pacific Research Institute joining us now. Sally, welcome to Made in America. Well, thank you so much for having me on. So you've just uh, published a piece, great piece. Uh, it ran in a CNBC, and it was uh, titled "Etna's Obamacare Pullout Means the Insurance Death Spiral Has Arrived. Now, this is something that has been talked about since the very, very beginning, and now it seems to really be happening. I mean, is, is this the death spiral that, uh, that we have heard about? Is all of those things coming true that the young people are not showing up and the people who need more care, much more care than they're paying in, are about the only ones showing up. Well, I think absolutely. And, you know, I think the original idea that President Obama had for the Affordable Care Act, it's not affordable anymore, um, I think, you know, his idea really was that we would move the country from the health care system we had um, to a single-payer Medicare for All system. I really believe that was his goal. And we're certainly seeing that now. You know, he had a piece, an eight-page piece in the Journal of American Medicine um, on, you know, why Obamacare is such a success. And he ended up by saying we need to bring back the public option, which would be a um, government insurance plan competing against private insurers um, in, the, in the exchanges. So this, to me, is, shows it wasn't a success. 
it's not a success. It is on a death spiral. And, you know, as you mentioned, we saw United Health pull out of all but three markets um, a short time ago. Now Aetna announced this week that they're going to stop offering plans um, in all but four states next year. Um, so you're right. I mean, the, the idea was that the young invincibles, I'm not in this age group anymore, I don't know if you are, but 18 to 34-year-olds would make up 40% of the exchange market because Obamacare was such a great deal. Unfortunately, young people did not see this as a great deal, and they only account for 28% of, of the exchange population. And you're right, we've seen all the older and sicker people signing up. So these companies, you know, are losing a lot of money. Aetna, you know, is, is projected to lose about $300 million this year. United lost $500 million. So they're getting out, and people are facing premium increases for those people who stay in or enter next year. The average premium increase is going to be 24%. And remember, the president off, off told us the average family would see their premium go down by $2,500 a year. So that was a lie, and the, the, the uh, law is spiraling downward. Well, let me, let me ask you another question because, you know, yes, we, we are seeing exactly what was predicted, and we've all talked about it, that there would be a death spiral, that economically it doesn't make sense, that the mathematics of it doesn't make sense. And yet, you know, moving along this way, is there more to meet than meets the eye with this whole scenario? Is there something more than Aetna pulling out? Are they trying to leverage, you know, the government to approve, uh, you know, possible mergers with other health insurance companies? In other words, yeah, we agree there's a death spiral. Yes, we agree the mathematics doesn't work. 110%. We got that. But is there more here, a subliminal message that Aetna is trying to deliver to the government? And if they want to get something in return? Well, I mean, there's a lot of talk of that um, out there because um, for people that don't know this, um, Aetna is trying to buy Humana and Anthem is trying to buy Cigna. And so what would happen is we would be left with three major insurance companies, um, health insurance companies in this country. And the, the company said, you know, that if we merge, we will have, we will become more competitive and the price for coverage will go down. Well, as an economist, um, that's just not the way the world works. There will be less competition and prices will go up. So a number of people have been saying since the Department of Justice is, um, has a lawsuit against both of these mergers that a number of people have been saying since uh, because of this, these companies, um, Anthem, Aetna, are threatening to you know, not offer plans in the exchanges. I mean, there may be some of that, but I think the basic issue is when you are losing so much money on your exchange plans, um, you're not the government. You can't just tax people more. And so the option is is to get out of the exchange business because they must have underestimated or their actuaries did about you know who was going to sign up, who was young and healthy, and how many you know older, sicker people would sign up. And in fact, you know the Congressional Budget Office had predicted that we would have 21 million people signing up on the exchanges um, this year, 2016. But in fact, the uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services just downgraded that number to 11.1 million. So there aren't many people, but the people who are getting this coverage are very expensive people. And so the bottom line is these companies cannot afford to continue in this marketplace. So, Sally, are the people who are signing up, the, the people who need it most, the, the most sick, are they actually able to use it? Are they finding doctors who will take it, hospitals that will take it? Well, that, that is one of the, the big, another big segment of why Obamacare is, 
is um, imploding because, you know, the people that signed up for the, the metallic plants, whether it's bronze, um, silver, copper, or I mean gold or platinum, you know, they thought, well, I'm buying this plan. I'm going to be able to have any doctor, the doctor I've had, any specialist, the hospitals. But what these people have found out is that in many, many cases that their doctor is not called in-network, and so they don't have access to their, their previous doctor, their previous specialist, their previous um, hospital. And so this has been very upsetting to to patients, and I think one of the reasons why six and a half years after this law became, this legislation became law, that um, 54% of Americans would like to see the law repealed and replaced. So let me ask you this. This is exactly right. And who suffers in all of this? It's the people out there. You know, if, if, if in fact, Aetna does withdraw from this exchange and, and the exchanges ran around the country, there are some states, Neil, that they have no options anymore. Isn't that true? I mean, they're really in trouble. And well, isn't the it, final option, isn't the final option what the government would probably be uh, lobbying for is the single payer? I mean, yeah. is, this, is this the reason now that the I mean, government steps in and devious. says this thing has fallen apart? So we were right. We were right. We were right. It's got to be the single payer. See, we told you this thing would fall apart and we should have did it in the first place. Absolutely. And as I say, I think it was it was their plan all along. And now that Hillary has moved further to the left on health care because, of, you know, she wanted to get Bernie Sanders endorsement and get Bernie Sanders people to vote for her. And so we are seeing that um, this this is this is their law. I mean, remember, when the law was um, initially passed by the House back in 2010, there was a public option in the in the bill. It went to the Senate the public option was stripped out because they felt the senators wouldn't vote for it. And so in re- in re- to replace that, they set up these co- co-ops, um, so cooperative-oriented um, um, and marketed plans. You know, when people on Medicaid, the program for low-income Americans, that you know, many states took that Medicaid expansion money, 32-plus 32, 32 D.C., now that we have 76 million people on Medicaid and CHIP, these people are going to the doctor and finding out that the doctor doesn't, you know, they can't get an appointment. Doctors don't want to take them because of low reimbursement rates. And therefore, um, these people are having to use the emergency rooms, which was the whole idea that President Obama said was the basis, one of the bases for him, you know, getting this law passed. So it is not helping the American people, as, as, as we can see. Hey, Sally, uh, thanks for being on the show. We've been talking to Sally Pipes from the Pacific Research Institute in her piece in CNBC, Aetna's Obamacare pullout means the insurance death spiral has arrived. Sally, thanks for being on the show. You've been a great guest. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a good weekend. Coming up, Dr. Rothman and I are going to continue on this discussion about Obamacare and some other topics that impact your jobs. Made in America. Welcome to Made in America. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, together with co-host Dr. Rich Ruffin. Hey, Rich, you know, in talking with Sally Pipes from the Pacific Research Institute about how Obamacare has entered into the insurance death spiral, you know, we got, you know, so, you know, we were talking about that knowing that we talked about it so many times before and we always talked about it as something in the future and now it's happening You know, we forgot to talk about something that is also so important in this, 
is that the average increases are skyrocketing and what that means to our small businesses and our entrepreneurs. That's something we've also talked a lot about. And uh, yes, it's being reported about uh, United Healthcare. They're pulling out of Obamacare, the nation's largest insurer. And then we heard Humana is call, is pulling out uh, of um, of Obamacare. And now Aetna's uh, the fourth largest insurer is pulling out of Obamacare. But what does that mean to our small businesses? Because these premiums are skyrocketing. They're skyrocketing. And if these large companies cannot afford it, how do you expect our small businesses to be able to afford it? You know, it's just falling on their backs. You know, they can pull out of Obamacare. And they can pull out of Obamacare. But our small businesses can't. Yeah, no, this is – and it's really funny you should say that because, as you know, I'm, I've started another company. And I'm hiring right now. And in part of the discussion that we're having with about 15 employees – is, you know, health care, because a lot of them have health care and they want to make sure they have health care. So I've had my agent, my corporate agent, who I haven't spoken to in a number of years, do the research. And we're going to obviously we have to have something. And the pricing is just it's 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 outrageous. So I, I think there are a lot of problems out there right now. One, it didn't make sense for the insurance companies. The insurance companies went along with it because I thought there's going to be a, a kickback or a payback, not a kickback but a payback for them in some form and fashion they thought from the that, administration. That when this thing would, would get into this death spiral, yeah. that the federal government would be there. Yeah, well, in, in some degree, and they they're waited, pushing they for that. They do want to they uh, waited. Uh, they want to have a, a subsidy, a corporate subsidy. But it's not there. Well, no. Because they can't. But, but because Neil, Congress here, has to make here's that the subsidy. question. Here's the question. This is what we were talking about. And some of our buddies at Real Clear and others and the Federalists, they're talking about this. What does it, is this is in exactly what was intended in the first place? Was it intended to go into a death spiral? Was it intended to somehow lead down the path to a one-payer system? Isn't that what the, the crazies on the left wanted in the first place? Isn't this kind of what Hillary Care was back in the 90s? Isn't this was a failed concept that Hillary had a long time ago in the Clintons? Is this not what Bernie wanted? So in, if, in fact, isn't this what half the, you know, the, 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 the population out there is envisioning, certainly Obama. What do you think about that? And what do you think about that is that this is impacting our jobs in a very, very big way. Yes. You know, and uh, yes, our small businesses just can't afford this burden. And more and more of it is going to be put on them, especially if we go to the single payer. Because if we think that our taxes are high today, wait until that happens. But fortunately, you know, that has to come with an act of Congress. So elections do matter. And the only reason that they were able to get this on us and put this on the backs of the American people, and especially our job creators, was because they had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. Remember that whole that thing exactly with, the, with right. the Kennedy seat? And then they actually uh, <laughs> had uh, – you know, they – they elected a Republican in Massachusetts to the Kennedy seat so they would not pass Obamacare, but they did some backdoor thing and they got it through. But this is a mess. I, I don't know where it ends. I, don't, I, I really don't. Yeah, it, it, it's ugly. Well, and until we do figure this out, it's going to have a huge draining impact on our, on our entrepreneurs. How can they afford 24% increases a year on an expense that is already outrageous when there is very little inflation. You know, I do a lot of business consumer type products. You know, I'm a manufacturer. I sell them 
to, to almost every uh, retailer in the United States has our products. We cannot make price increases. You know, if I go to one of my big retailers for the last eight years, I cannot have a price increase. So how can anybody afford 24% cost increases when you cannot pass that on to your customers? So what's the net sum game? What's the net sum game in this? What does a, a manufacturer or a company like yours, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of employees, I'm a small guy. I only got 15 coming on September 1st. But hundreds of employees, what's the net sum game in that, Neil? Where do, what, does, what road do you go down to provide or not provide, but you have to provide because that's the law. What, are you gonna, what do you do? What does somebody recommend to you to do? Well, what happens is that you know, they're going to go with the skinniest plans possible. The skinniest well, yeah, plans possible. Yeah, we, we get that. Yeah, but, but you know, in the past, we were giving plans that were so much better to our employees. We we're covering so much of the expense of the family cost. So did I. We were so covering so much more expense and better plans, less deductibles, you know, everything. The quality of the plans were so much greater. So now what's happening, instead of offering these better plans, what you have to do is you keep offering smaller plans and smaller plans that are still compliant, but the employees are taking it on the nose. At some point, that, 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 that line is going to cross to where even the most basic plans are going to be unaffordable. But not only are they unaffordable from the premium point of view, Neil, because I just looked at this, but the deductibles are outrageous. Oh, you're going to have to get uh, these you're high gonna deductibles. You're going to have high, ex- high expense plans. And the family. Remember, in Obamacare, you only have to provide affordable health care to the individual. You don't have to do it to the family. And the family is where the big expense is. And, and how can somebody, you know, who's making what they make with everything else they got to spend money on, how can they afford to have a family coverage uh, with the expense of what these Obamacare plans are ultimately going to cost. Rich, unfortunately, we're out of time. Thanks for your passion on that topic. I can always count on you. Coming up, we have William Ruger from the Cato Institute, and he's going to talk about the Freedom Index in the United States. Made in America. Sharply higher at the open, stocks continued to perform well over the course of the day Tuesday. And I think that bodes well here over the next couple of years for having bigger demands coming to this country. Now, more of Neil Asbury's Made in America. A very big welcome to you today. I'm Neil Asbury, together with co-host Dr. Rich Ruff. And Rich, we've had a lot of discussions over the years on the air and off the air on our freedoms, on our personal freedoms. I know we've done a lot of uh, uh, segments on and America becoming a, a nanny state and how government in, in the local, the state, uh, the federal level is interfering in our lives on some things that they just should stay out of. It's just an epidemic. It's become an epidemic in this country. Well, it's sort of like uh, welcome to the land of uh, uh, Bloomberg. <laughs> he was who I was thinking of, actually. <laughs> I know that. I can tell that. Now, de Blasio has followed up really nicely on that, too. But, you know, all around the country, it's incredible, you know, what the government is trying to tell us to do or not to do. And, you know, I know they got good intentions, and sometimes it actually makes sense. But we're human beings. We do the things in our lives that make us happy. Some people might want to live longer, and some people really don't care. 
So why should the government get involved? Yeah, but every now and then you need a good milkshake, and you want a big milkshake, and you know, <laughs> listen, ask, hamburger with bacon. Listen, exactly. Ask some of the kids who wound up eating Michelle Obama's foods at the, at the you know high oh school goodness. and middle school. It didn't work. It's it didn't over, work. folks. It didn't work. Not so good. All right, go ahead. So where is where where, where are freedoms going? And right. if you want to be free, where do you go in this country anymore? Well. There is actually a study that's been done on that, and a study that's very fascinating that scores all 50 states on over 200 policies, including fiscal policy, regulatory policy, personal freedoms. If you want to own a gun or if you want to smoke pot, they cover it all. We're very pleased to have on William Ruger from the Cato Institute to talk to us about this. William, welcome to Made in America. Thanks for having me. It's great. Hey, hey! It was a wonderful piece there, and uh, that you did, uh, "Freedom in the Fifty States." And I, anybody who would like to see this, our listeners can go to freedominthefiftystates.org to see this study, and uh, you can go and put in the things that are important to you and find out which states you can be more free in and can maybe be a, the better place for you to want to live. So, William, tell us, you know, what is the freest state? If is there a state that's more free and a state that's less free? You know, just kind of overall. Yes, indeed there are, and there is quite a bit of variation in among the states, uh, given that we have a federal system that gives states still a lot of powers, uh, and uh, we see a, a really great group of clustered states at the top. So New Hampshire is the number one state, but there's a whole bunch of states at the top, Alaska, Oklahoma, Indiana, South Dakota, Tennessee, Idaho, that are really performing a lot better than their fellow states. And there are states that are performing really quite poorly as well. Fascinating. Well, I got to figure this out. So our our audience is sitting there and they're saying, "Wait a minute, I'm in Pennsylvania. Don't I have personal freedom?" Let's explain in 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 layman's terms. What does this mean? How do you calculate this? Because this is very interesting. I mean, to find out that you're overregulated, underregulated, and no wonder you're walking around depressed. You don't even know why. So <laughs> so this is a really good chart and a good analysis. So tell us real quick, how do you do this? How do you create this? scenario? Well, you, you, you take a basic definition that's consistent with the American tradition, like basically leaving people alone to live their lives as they see fit, as long as they're not directly impinging on other people's rights. And then you look at about 230 variables. It's really easy for 50 states, right? All, all those data points. And, uh, and then you say, how do they stack up with each other in terms of how much the state is actually impinging on what you ought to be able to do? Um, whether that's from uh, in terms of the tax bite on your wallet every year or whether that's uh, the ability to you know, go into an occupation without having to be licensed or if it's even it, whether it's you want to drink raw milk or not. So there are states that vary in terms of their regulations on all kinds of things, both personal freedom and how you operate as a business person uh, to the tax bite. So it's interesting that New Hampshire was the most free state. What, what, what are the states that are the, the least free? Well, New York is the least state by far. It performs so much. By far. Wow. Why am I not surprised on that one? Yeah, it's shocking, huh? I mean, that Uh, really shocks me. Hello, Cuomo. Right. (laughs) Hello? But, what's, uh, <laughs> but what's interesting is how much worse it even does than California, which is another state that, that no one would be surprised is performing badly on freedom. Well, that, this is terrific because when you when you you can line some of this up. And you and you take a look at who's been controlling some of these states and or mega cities inside of these states, and and then you take a look at the psychographics of the rioting and the and the absolutely ab- 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 lawlessness, high lawlessness, and lack of economy. 
And, you know, this is a very important draft. This tells you, I don't want to go to that state. I don't think this is a good idea because just what you said, if I want to be an SME, I want to start a dry cleaning, you know, group of companies in a city. Well, this is a horrible city to do it in because I'm going to be overregulated for my chemicals and this and that. It's not going to work. So you have higher unemployment. You have angst. I mean, all these people failed Maslow's theories of hierarchies, every one of them. They don't seem to get it because no one's walking around self-actualized that they can achieve anything. This is a right, and you don't want to have it did. where you create a two-tiered society because of well-connected interests. You want to allow people to succeed or fail based on on their merits, their talents, their hard work, their ethic, right? So you want to have people succeed, not be stymied by government regulation. And it does matter to to the things we care about, like economic growth and opportunity. So economic freedom, particularly regulatory freedom, does correlate with with better economic growth. And then the, the other really interesting thing is that people are fleeing places that have less freedom. So sure, people move for all kinds of reasons, climate, amenities, but we found that even when you control for those types of things, people are voting with their feet from more free states to less free states. And there's a number of examples that I can point to in different regions. You think about a place like Illinois, great city like Chicago, you know, you'd think people would be attracted to that place. They've lost 7.5% of their 2,000 population since that time, whereas a state like Indiana, very, very similar to Illinois, but without Chicago, and they basically remain flat, which shows you the difference between Indiana, which has a really good regulatory policy regime, versus Illinois, which does not. Same thing holds between New Hampshire and Mass, between states like California and Nevada and Arizona, where the, where, you know, think about New York. New York lost 11.2% of its population to other states. Now, some of that's people retiring, going to Florida, whatnot. But a lot of times it's because people, especially upstate, they just are, are really stifled by high taxes and a high regulatory structure that they can't handle. Fascinating. Fascinating, Mark. Hey, we really appreciate you being on the show. A great study. Uh, great, great study. Um, it's, it's Freedom in the 50 States. You can find that at freedominthe50states.org. And uh, check it out. Find out where you rank those things that are important to you and where you might decide to start a business. Very, very important and very important to our economy and to our country that we maintain our freedoms. William, thank thank you for being on Made in America. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up, we have Mark Perry from the American Enterprise Institute. And he's going to talk uh, about his study. The things we want are getting cheaper, but the things we need are getting more expensive. Very, very important information about to come your way. Made in America. Can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find. Welcome to Made in America. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, together with co-host, Dr. Rich Rothman. Really love that song, man. I grew up with that song. Great album. All the songs in that album was incredible. But the Washington Post has just uh, published a piece here, uh, Rich, um, and it was based on a study by our next guest. The stuff we really need is getting more expensive. Other stuff is getting cheaper. And it's really fascinating to see this. Because it's really true what they're talking about here. The things that we really need are costing more, while things that we could probably do without 
are really tanking in price. And, and, and why is that? And, and I think I have a couple of theories of my own on this, and I want to kind of check them out with our guest who actually is responsible for this incredible study. So we're very pleased to welcome Mark Perry from the American Enterprise Institute. Mark, welcome to Made in America. Yeah, hi, Neil. Hi, Rich. So, Mark, I mean, a fascinating study. So why is it that the things that we really need are getting really out of control while the things that are nice to have seem to be going down. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if it was the other way around? Yeah, although, you know, I didn't have it in the chart, but what I'm showing here is over the last 20 years, the percentage increase in the price of various consumer goods and services compared to the overall price increase for goods on average, which was 55%. Now, I didn't put in there that actually wages over this period have gone up by about 82% and compensation has gone up by about 95%. So what that would suggest is that even the goods that have gone up here, like food and beverages and housing, they've gone up less on average than workers' wages. And so even those are getting less expensive. So really, the, the goods that are getting or services that are getting more and more expensive, of course, are health care and then child care and then college tuition and college textbooks books. But I think, you know, thinking about this is that we can think of the goods that are manufactured just keep getting cheaper and cheaper. And that's been happening for 100 years. That's what I've called the miracle of manufacturing, that anything manufactured just gets better and better and cheaper over time. And so if you think of TVs and toys and clothing and household furnishings like appliances and even new cars, um, those keep getting cheaper and cheaper relative to other prices and relative to our income. You know what I find interesting? You know, I'm looking, I'm looking at this, and your chart, which is really good, and you have textbooks, college tuition, child care, health care, food and beverage, housing, and then we get to the, th- the stuff that's really getting, you know, less expensive, and we just went through it, new cars and, you know, clothing, cell phones, software, toys, and TVs, and so forth. So it's almost like, you know, when you, what's the effect? What's the psychological effect on a population where the, well, sort of like the comfort food for the mind? You know, when people don't feel good, they go and they have comfort food. They eat mac and cheese, they eat this fattening stuff, high calories, because it's cheap, it's quick, and so forth. This is almost like people don't realize how bad off they might really be because they're feeling pretty good about it. They've got their cell phone, they've got their TV, probably means they have Netflix. You know, their priorities are very, very interesting. Maybe, I don't know, does that influence them in some way? Do they not see the reality of what's happening in life, or are they just a bunch of happy guys? Well, yeah, and I think the fact, that, again, if you think of over this period that even just cash wages without um, compensation or fringe benefits, wages have gone up by 82%. And so all of these, most of these goods here, even food and beverages, compared to our income, have gotten less and less expensive. So I think this translates into a rising standard of living for even just the average person in America, because a lot of what we buy gets cheaper and cheaper over time, meaning that we have a higher standard of living over time. I think that both of our presidential candidates should probably read your report because they're both beating up on international trade. I mean, it's like uh, the boogeyman in the closet right now that uh, is the problem of everything. This is a great chart. And, and, And what you've pointed out is that Americans have greatly benefited, that the cost of many, many things that we buy have gone down and the wages have gone way up. So, you know, what's wrong with that? 
Uh, nothing really. And, you know, I was just writing something about this now for my Carpe Diem blog about how a little over half of what comes into the country as imports are machinery and equipment and raw materials and supplies and inputs that are really being purchased by U.S. companies who have ordered these supplies. And so the cheaper those goods are for American companies, the more competitive they are, the more market share they'll have, the more sales they'll have, and the more American workers they can hire. Because if we think of manufacturers, they're ordering some of their inputs from overseas. So we get hear all of this nonsense, Trump beating up on on uh, imports and saying they take jobs away from America, but more than half of what comes in are not finished consumer products like a TV. They're raw materials that are being purchased by an American manufacturer to make them more competitive, and then they can hire more workers. So really, we have to think of that part of international trade, too, is that the imports coming in are really what American businesses, manufacturers, factories are ordering to help them stay competitive and hire more U.S. workers in the long run. Mark, I, I th- thanks for making that point, because I'm an American manufacturer. I employ over 600 people, and we do import a lot of raw materials and sub-assemblies and so forth to put into our products that we then export around the world. You know, nobody sees that, but I never knew that it was 50% of our overall imports for merchandise was these type of products. I mean, I'm going to use that. That is an incredible number, and I think anybody who is doubting global trade needs to understand that number, and they also need to understand uh, this incredible study that Mark has done that the things that we want are getting cheaper and the things that we need are getting more expensive, but at least, at least the quality of our life is improving with these goods. And our factories are benefiting uh, from these imported products because it's making them more and competitive. we have a happy society. Mark, thanks for being on the show. Wonderful sure, study. Great to be on. Yeah, have me on again sometime. Thank you. Coming up, Dr. Rothman is going to talk about cronyism in America. Made in America. Welcome to Made in America. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, together with co-host Dr. Rich Ruffin. Rich, I just got to say it one more time because this is a fascinating statistic. <laughs> I am definitely going to use it in my writing and my next piece coming up in, New- in Newsmax. Uh, Mark Perry, American Enterprise Institute, a fascinating thing. Study about the things that we really need are, are getting uh, much more expensive and uh, the things that we really don't need are getting cheaper. But he went on to point out how because of importation and global trade, that things are, you know, manufactured goods are getting cheaper, but also American manufactured goods are getting cheaper. And I am a living example of this because I'm an American manufacturer. I promote made in America products. And 50% of our imports are raw materials and machinery that's used in production. And I'm an American manufacturer, an entrepreneur that, that buys those products so I can be more competitive and not only here in the United States, but to sell my products around the world. And we have two presidential candidates who are wanting to destroy global trade for whatever reason, I don't know, but they just don't have their facts straight. I just had to get that out. Thanks for allowing me this indulgence. So tell us. So what does that mean about about robots, robots? for God's sakes? (laughs) Question. How did I get in this taxi? The door open. You got in. All of you may remember that in Total Recall, a number of years ago, quite a few years ago, back in the 80s, uh, you know, we, we had this uh, Johnny Cab. You remember? Mm-hmm. In, in, in uh, you know, the, the lead guy is, uh, you know, uh, he's taking his trip intellectually by 
having an implant in his brain. He goes to Mars, and it doesn't work out very well, and he freaks out in the chair because evidently he was in Mars, and, uh, and they, they just kind of drug him out, and they throw him into a cab, and that's how he winds up in this cab. And it's called Johnny Cab. And Johnny Cab turns around, hi, welcome, welcome to Johnny Cab. Where do you want to go? And give me your destination. And, and he's so drugged out, he doesn't know what to say. And he says, I need a destination. He won't go anywhere. In the meantime, the bad guys are coming after him. Well, we all thought that was kind of a fun thing, you know, it was a science fiction thing back in, in the 80s, in the uh, mid to late 80s. But as we all know recently, over the last year we followed this, Neil, that driverless cars are turning into a very serious business. And it's, it's going to get really serious really soon with people like Uber. And it turns out Uber's first driving fleet arrives in Pittsburgh, guess when, Neil? This month. This month. The autonomous cars launching the summer are here. Of course, they're using Volvo because everyone knows that you never get hurt in a Volvo. I wonder why. A Volvo XC90 supervised by humans in the driver's seat. Now, it's going to start out that way that humans will uh, be sitting in the driver's seat, but the car is going to drive itself. And this is, this is a serious multi-billion dollar industry in the United States right now. Carnegie Mellon, hence the connection to Pittsburgh, has been working with Uber's co-founder and chief executive officer, Travis Kalanick. I hope I said that right, who flew to Pittsburgh on a mission a while back to hire dozens of world experts in autonomous vehicles. And, of course, Carnegie Mellon has a robotics department, Neil, a robotics department at Carnegie Mellon, which has produced many of the biggest names in newly hot field, like Sebastian Thurn, the creator of Google's self-driving car project, has done. And he spent seven years researching autonomous cars at Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon Institute. And what they've, they've come up with is the ability to have a car. They've produced this car. Uh, Volvo is creating it for them on a spe- separate line. And uh, they're going to have a car that ultimately is going to be completely driverless. And you can, you can get in one of these cars sometime towards the, the end of August, beginning of September. But let, let me, there's, there's a thing I wanted to explain, that there's a, uh, a, a chart, that the whole concept that they've been working on was to go from oh, something sort of like a, a 1972 you know, uh, Chevy, where they had a couple of items that are you know, uh, driverless, and you can do things with in terms of good braking system and so forth. And ultimately, the level four car, which is what they're moving towards right now and spending all this money, is a completely Johnny Cab. They're calling it the Johnny Cab car from Total Recall. This is becoming a reality in Pittsburgh within weeks. So if you go to Pittsburgh, you can get into a Johnny car, and you might actually eventually have no driver. The Uber drivers, by the way, feel like rental drivers. They feel like they're going to be let go, and eventually it'll be Johnny Cab, who will turn around and say, where do you want to go, sir? Well, that's an incredible story because I've used Uber a lot, and all the drivers I've had have been very good. I really feel bad for these guys because Uber for them was a really, really big deal. I've talked to these people, and they're very happy about Uber came along, and then Lyft came along and provided them this opportunity. But uh, anyway, that's the world we live in. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But we're going to be back again next week for another adventure of Made in America, where we never stop fighting for your jobs. Right here. Thank you for taking Johnny Cab.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.